and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager of Owl Explains, and I am super excited to share this special episode with you. This episode comes from one of the panels we recently hosted at the Avalanche Summit in Barcelona, our first in-person event as Owl Explains, in which we gathered many wise owls from all over the world seeking to build a better internet. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you all. We've got a really terrific panel here. Um, I'll have each of the panelists introduce themselves and then we'll get started. So Joey, introduce yourself. Yep, sure. I'm uh, a director of Zappo, the Zappo Bank, uh, where I head up regulatory affairs and I'm also the specialist consultant to the United Nations. So I deal with the training and uh, assessments of regulatory authorities all over, all over the world and what they're doing on VASP related standards. So it's me. Man, me. Hi, uh, I run Blockseed Ventures. It's, uh, we invest in blockchain businesses from an early stage, and I'm also um, um, on the board of the Blockchain for Europe. Ursula. Hi, Ursula McCormack. I'm a regulatory lawyer uh, at Kingwood Mallison's, an international law firm, and I head up the global crypto practice. And John Bay. Yeah, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I am a patent lawyer at PKL, which is Korean law firm. I have advised on several aspects of a crypto uh, scene. So I have delivered uh, several speech and presentation on uh, uh, several types of uh, conferences and seminars in Korea. And uh, I'm very pleased to be here. So everybody's always talking about the United States and what's going on with Gary Gensler and blah, 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 Congress and this and that. Forget about the United States. We're not talking about the United States on this panel. And forget about Europe and the UK. We're actually, there's a whole world out there, billions of people out there that are not in any of those places. And so we've got this great panel of experts talk with us about what's going on in other places in the world. Maybe for the first question, I'll ask each of you uh, to talk about one or two jurisdictions that you're familiar with and what sort of the key issue or issues is in each of those jurisdictions. So, uh, Ursula, why don't we start with you since you're wearing a white shirt? I'm wearing a white shirt. Excellent. Um, I'm also wearing a colorful skirt. So it's a theme of the rest of the world is that there's a lot going on, but somehow it works. Um, so look, yes, there is a lot that's going on. Um, the markets that I cover, um, Hong Kong and Australia, um, are really interesting in demonstrating the sort of differing approaches. Um, and I was also in Dubai earlier this week, catching up with some of the contacts who are now in VARA, um, the Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority, and happy to share with you some of the, the trends. Um, Hong Kong has a regime that goes live on the 1st of June. It is a re regime that has been shouted from the rooftops and you'll see a lot of really strong government, uh, you know, um, signaling around the welcoming of Web3 to Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been for a very long time a very welcoming place um, for crypto, despite its many other issues. Um, but from 1 June, there'll be a regime that regulates automated exchanges, so matching platforms that custody assets. And that's a really critical thing to know is that's it and it isn't covering necessarily anything else from a virtual asset sector perspective. But if you are in that regime, you have some of the most stringent regulation in the world. The SFC is the regulator, it's the securities regulator, and it expects you to run that as if it would the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, any other stock exchange. So things like 
no uh, proprietary trading, uh, no derivatives. It's very much a purest system. And on top of that, the level of client asset protection is extraordinarily high. All assets need to be on trust in an SPV that is its own regulated entity and at a 100% level. 97% of those assets need to be in cold storage and you need to have insurance or a compensation fund on top of that expecting a total loss scenario and then capital and liquidity on top of that. So it is far and above away anything beyond what a bank would be subject to or any other. So incredibly stringent once you're in and as much as there is, you know, really great interest and that's a really good thing from a Hong Kong perspective, it will only be a few that make it. It's a very stringent regime. But it does mean that there's a lot left in terms of experimentation without necessarily being regulated. In contrast, if you look at Dubai, covers a lot of stuff, a lot of different activities in relation to virtual assets, um, but is a little bit, I would say, easier. And you, you know, in, in hearing directly from Vara earlier this week, um, they expect to be one of the largest regulators in the world, as in having a lot of people within their purview. Australia is a little bit further behind, although many of the lawyers um, on the ground will tell you that most of the instruments, including most, if not all the stable coins, are financial products already. Um, but so there's a really high level of enforcement activity, um, but they're taking their time and thinking, why do we regulate at all? Um, and has, have undertaken a token mapping uh, uh, exercise and really staging that, that process very carefully. So I'll pause, pause there and pass on. Great, okay, John Beck. Yeah, um, uh, first, uh, regarding, oof, <laughs> regarding Korean uh, regulation, uh, in Korea, the investor market is so hot, but uh, uh, in uh, contrast to that, uh, the regulation seems uh, slow, uh, because uh, uh, so far, there is no uh, regulation except the AML Act in Korea, but quite recently, Korean Parliament passed, the subcommittee of uh, Parliament uh, passed uh, uh, the Crypto Asset Protection, Investor Protection Act. Uh, so it is uh, on the way of being uh, resolved by the, the plenary session of the Parliament. And uh, in addition to that, uh, uh, in February, Korean uh, regulator uh, announced a guideline on security token offerings in Korea. Uh, its aim is uh, to regularize uh, security tokens uh, uh, through uh, amending the relevant uh, acts like a uh, capital market act and then uh, the electronic uh, securities act uh, and in the meantime before the amendment of the relevant acts uh, the FAC will grant uh, regulatory sandboxes uh, for uh, STO project with uh, innovative effect uh, that's uh, the, the whole uh, picture of that. Uh, and then uh, let me add uh, some uh, regulation in Japan. Uh, Japan, uh, uh, traditionally Korean uh, regulation followed uh, Japan's uh, in uh, general sense, but uh, uh, with crypto scene, it's quite different. Uh, Japan, uh, I think Japan is a, uh, uh, ahead of uh, Korea in terms of the regulation on crypto uh, assets. Uh, uh, a few uh, years ago, they already 
uh, admitted uh, the crypto asset uh, to be used as a means of uh, uh, payment. And then uh, they legalized already STOZO. And then quite recently, uh, they uh, made some regulation on uh, stable coins as well, uh, even though uh, the requirement is that they, the, the issue of a stable coin or the, the uh, stable coin service provider should keep uh, the collateral, uh, fiat collateral, uh, by uh, Japanese custodians. And then uh, further to that, uh, uh, Japanese government has some uh, special committee uh, regarding Web3 adoption. Uh, they have some plan to legalize DAOs into Japanese legal systems. Yeah. Great. And Manmeet, what's going on in your world? Okay, so um, I guess in contrast to Ursula's white and colorful attire, me being in all black maybe indicates something, I'm not sure, but uh, two jurisdictions that are important to me are, are India, where I'm from, uh, and Singapore, where I'm based. Uh, and I guess the all black sort of represents the India position on this. So India has an outlawed crypto or doesn't have any clear regulations around it. Uh, however, uh, there's no status to it yet. Uh, the central bank, governor, the minister of finance have been very, very negative on the entire industry, but regulations haven't come out. So you can still trade, you can buy and sell, but all the local exchanges, the way they make it sort of more uh, difficult and onerous for retail participants to participate is that there's an actual transaction, a, a tax on every transaction, right? So that just makes it really difficult and more expensive for any participant, retail or institution, especially in retail, to really participate in crypto uh, legitimately and so on. So, so that's sort of, it, it, India's trying to figure out exactly what rule and law to put in place, uh, and until then, you know, be wary. Singapore uh, started off a lot more, I think, open to, to blockchain, and I think when we look at regulations, maybe there are like sort of three, way, three, three buckets to kind of look at it in. One is uh, the regulations and existence around, and, and, and rules around the existence of exchanges, domestic exchanges, right? The, the ability for uh, retail to actually participate in, in purchase and sell of tokens. Uh, the second one is for, for businesses, uh, startups and whatever to have the right regulatory framework for them to set up a business that leverages blockchain, may have tokens, may not have tokens or whatever, but then it, it um, has a play towards a consumer, towards the retail segment which for regulators is a large part of what they're all worried about. And the and third part is towards the business segments, so like a, you know, B2B versus B2C kind of play. So in that, I think uh, from an exchange perspective, Singapore has been fairly open um, in, in line for license exchanges, very few, but you have that and you have the ability to participate offshore as well. So retail has access on and off ramps for, for crypto. Um, in terms of startups setting up their business in Singapore, being able to, you know, issue tokens and have investors coming in from other parts of the world, that's quite easy. A lot of some of the uh, foundations, for example, are for blockchain companies and all are based out of Singapore. Uh, and that's been sort of fairly easy. There's a standard set of templates, rules and regulations around it. So you have predictability. You know what you can, what you can't do. On the B2B side, um, it's been a mixed bag, I think, with, with Singapore right now. 
Uh, the, the local regulator, it's an all-in-one regulator called uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore. You know them very well, obviously. Um, and they are in the midst now of consultations with industry to sort of figure out what is the best regulatory framework. But what's more important, I think, in contrast with what you see in the U.S. and possibly even in Europe, is that, you know, if you understand Singapore and Singapore Inc., if you want to call it, you know, there's this one master regulator, then they have these sort of sovereign wealth funds that are big investors, and these are large investors in both uh, early stage ventures and late stage ventures and so on. So they actually invest in blockchain companies. So one of the biggest, you know, I, I think, I guess, famous stories now out of Singapore in the recent past was that Tamasic, one of the uh, wealth funds out of Singapore, actually was an investor in FTX and lost a lot of money in that thing. But to me, you know, the large part here is that as an institution, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a jurisdiction that has gone, experimented, made investments, opened up its doors, allowed participation across multiple segments, and is now understanding how that is playing out and then trying to figure out what are the best rules that allow for innovation, allow for participation, but in, in turn protect the domestic environment, the domestic ecosystem. But using Singapore as a base for servicing the rest of the world, uh, no problem. Great. And Joey, uh, talk a little bit about some of your UN work and, and what's yeah, going on. I think it's, you know, it's an amazing world that we live in, right? And, and actually, we've heard our, our colleagues before talk about Mika, etc. You know, none of the top 25 platforms in this world operate within the, within the EU. And obviously, I'm a big supporter of regulatory certainty and clarity, and that's all super fantastic. But the reality is frameworks like the, 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 the Payments Act in Singapore came into effect in 2018. In Gibraltar, it was like 2017. There are lots of frameworks around the world that have developed over time. And that has a huge amount of value and a huge amount of actual activity that's being conducted in the world. It's a digital, online, global, cross-border based infrastructure so your domicile or your base is obviously key and core but it's not like it was in the olden days in the olden days if you weren't a hedge fund registered in uh, managed from new york or london you're it's a bit questionable if you're a private bank you're not in switzerland it's also slightly odd but in this world that's not the case um, and i think lots of jurisdictions have raised that and, and there's been loads of issues by the way you know we, we mentioned ftx that, that's another problem, sort of, Mika is wonderful on, on, on one side of things. How many of the regulatory authorities within Europe have the, the competence and understanding to properly monitor and supervise this industry? I'm not really sure. Remember that in the Bahamas, there were law, there was law and regulation around client segregation of assets, co corporate governance, it was all legislation. Did the authorities have the capability to actively monitor that and implement it. Not, not really sure that they did. And, and the EU, to an extent, is slightly in that world. And I'm not going to go on a sort of EU bashing exercise or anything, but um, there are lots of questions around that. And we talked about all these new frontiers. Uh, decentralized finance as a concept is like super interesting and wonderful. In the Philippines, they've already developed a framework to try to bring that within some form of perimeter. In the EU, it's not really clear. Um, some people say it'll form part of Mika 2.0. Some people say, well, actually, if you look at the text and you, unless you really clearly define what an exchange is or what the reception or transmission of an order is, I can tell you there are going to be European authorities that form a view 
that uh, decentralized finance f falls within scope. And you have the FATF, and they're talking about this concept of influence and control. How many of the authorities are going to take that? And there's going to be lots of different interpretations around the around the EU as well. And it's wider than Mika. So um, you know the Data Act that people are uh, maybe don't talk that much about Article 30 yet, um, but that has a requirement for the interruption and termination of smart contracts as, as a requirement for the smart contract. What, what is the implication of that, the data act? And people talk about, a lot about interactions with unhosted wallets or interaction with DeFi-related platforms. So have they understood the implications of the, the TFR, the transfer of funds uh, regulations? Sometimes they haven't. Lots of other countries, I, I'm not, by the way, and I'm interested in everyone's thoughts, Sometimes you hear Mika is going to be the GDPR of regulation and the whole world is going to copy it. But the whole world has done a lot of things. The world is not sort of waiting for one benchmark and then they're going to spend another five years revising their legislation. They're very developed. Um, and it's another silly example, but um, I was with the Bika platform in, in Thailand. They control 90% of the volume in Thailand or something. Talk to them about banking correspondent issues and they look at you like an alien because they don't understand it. The, the entire central bank down to all banks are fully supportive. In Hong Kong there were statements the other day again about supporting the industry. So that's, that's already happening in Asia um, and that's where a lot of the big platforms are. So in the EU, in the US, it's just a different world. So, um, and I, I expect the question of you know, regulatory arbitrage to become more and more active, even within the EU, it'll become uh, more and more active, and EU versus rest of the world will also become more and more active. So I think it's important to understand what's happening in the world, I think, yeah. Uh, thank you all, those were really great comments. Um, it's hard for me to see a common theme across all of this though, and, and I wonder, if you all are seeing a common theme, I, everybody talks about anti-money laundering. We had a panel about that. It's pretty clear that a bunch of jurisdictions are doing things in that direction. Are we seeing any other common thread across multiple jurisdictions right now? I, I'll, I'll jump in. If, I mean, just super high level, what I would say if there was a common theme, it would be away from you know, the 2019 FATF recommendations around, you know, registration and AML to the scope of actual prudential supervision of actual regulation. So that, that is a definite common theme. The FTX blow-ups and other things like that have raised a lot of triggers with a lot of um, authorities. And then the, the other theme or, or the difference that I see anyway is some authorities are really open to discussions around I don't know, zero knowledge proof based on chain compliance or the concept of embedded supervision for a decentralized platform. Some of them are really open, some of them are really, really closed. So I am not going to convince the SEC to reform a view on how to approach uh, DeFi risk, but, but I can have that conversation with lots of, and I think that's a bit of a trend as well, that the adaptability of some versus the sort of stringent position of others and the move away from AML. Running KYC checks is not going to be, being regulated as a VASP is going to be a lot more than that, I think, moving forward. Don't know what you guys think, but... Uh... I was just going to say from a policy level, you see um, some very strong themes. If you're a jurisdiction that has capital controls, you're very concerned about crypto. And so like mainland China completely shut it down. 
markets like um, I would say Korea, Vietnam, where they've got restricted currencies equally have taken a more restrictive, restrained approach. But then you've got that whole category of jurisdictions that really see a competitive opportunity. They like to see the craziness going on in the US and the EU taking its time, and they see that business really responds well to a well-run regulatory environment. I mean, if they can make the ecosystem work, so that nudge into banks, that's a really strong thing. So Hong Kong is, is desperate to get business back to Hong Kong, and so that means that it's got a really strong policy objective. Singapore as well must retain its status as an international financial centre, otherwise it loses its you know, reason for, for, for being. So that's the theme. The other key theme I see is experimentation at a government and, and um, incumbent level. Um, we see this in Australia with really strong partnerships around experimentation of retail CBDCs, um, but working with fintechs and crypto providers along, that line, along those lines. And then in Hong Kong, you see the Hong Kong government uh, launched a digital bond with um, your Goldman Sachs platform and HSBC. Um, so that level of experimentation and learning is quite relentless and I see as a strong theme in Asia. I think the the other thing, by the way, because sort of is around sort of general solicitation rules as as a concept. So um, where, there's a lot more examples. So if you look at Mika, like as an example, Article sixty one, um, it, it will it actually defines when you're triggering a licensing requirement in the EU and when you're not. And there are lots of platforms looking for a hub, and they'll be focusing more on that, on not triggering those requirements. So that that and that across the world is becoming a much more outside of the US so touch point to the US is separate but the rest of the world is that that's a that's a, another sort of i think i think picking up from your point like one common theme you see especially across asia and i mean i'm talking about asia as per un's definition right so we're talking all the way from the middle east and you know all the way eastwards so across asia the adoption of fintech and the proliferation of fintech solutions amongst individuals, amongst the general populace, is very, very strong, has been there for a long time. So, you know, QR payments and all this kind of stuff, it's like, it, it's commonplace, right? So, uh, regulators out there are arguably slightly more in tune and understanding of both the benefits, the risks, and the opportunities that come out of all these plays and our particular blockchain industry. So they they try to engage more, they try to understand more. Uh, you have genuine open door policies with a lot of the regulators, even in India, you can go meet the regulator, they'll tell you no or something, but you'll get a clear answer one way or the other, right? And Singapore, open door, Hong Kong, I imagine it's the same thing. And and then and then Southeast Asia and and, and the GCC. Right, you go to the UAE. You can sit down and meet with the regulators and 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 have a chat with them about what you're trying to do and how it works for them, doesn't work for them, what you need to fix, what you don't. All of that stuff just makes it so much more practical and predictable and easy for businesses to consider figuring out which is the best location for them to set up a hub, a business, and and so on and so forth. John Beck, anything you'd like yeah. to add? Uh, uh, let me just add up one thing. Uh, the appropriateness uh, between the real risk and, and the proper measure is uh, very important. Otherwise, uh, uh, most of the uh, financial institutions or banks or other investors are restricted from uh, their investment or business activities. In that sense, I think uh, sharing some information on the, 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 the uh, wallet uh, address uh, in problem should be 
disclosed to the public or to some competent authorities don't so many jurisdictions can share those information and to utilize to protect some money laundering and then the other type of uh, telefinancing. So I, I think that, uh, we need to adopt that thing uh, more uh, than now. So outside the door, we have our tree of Web3 wisdom and the fifth branch of the tree is think global. And we really encourage all global regulators to be collaborating and talking with each other. Are you all seeing that happening? Is there good communication between regulators in different jurisdictions? You think, you think no. no. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I would say, generally speaking, uh, no. I would say beyond that, um, within some regulatory authority, there isn't really got good uh, cross communication within the authorities of sit within some some jurisdictions. There's some discussions around whether this falls within the scope of, well, I mean, the, in the US it's obviously the CTC and the SEC, et cetera, but, but um, that happens. That, in, that, that's a big et yeah. cetera too. But that happens in lots of, of, lots of uh, jurisdictions. And we haven't talked, by the way, about Latin America or, or South America. That's an entire, entirely different universe. They have a real attraction to the industry for lots and lots of other um, specific reasons. Um, you can't talk about the concern of Bitcoin volatility if you live in Argentina. Uh, it, it, it's a very different sort of concept. There, there is a lack of clarity there as well. And I think recently the IMF announced that the $45 billion funding into Argentina would be restricted on the basis that they started to close contact with, um, with crypto-related platforms. There was some uh, Lumio that introduced a sort of trading element to Bank of Galicia in Argentina, and that was by the central bank cut off within 24 hours because they're trying to restrict those controls and everything. So that, that's very general. But as a general point, I, you guys might have a different view, but I would say cross-jurisdictional or standard-setting exercises are no, not happening anywhere near enough. I don't know. Yeah, the, regarding uh, security token offering, Korean government is uh, keen on what's going on uh, with the American uh, regulation. So in that sense, uh, uh, unofficially, they contacted uh, the SEC, uh, what is the proper regulation on security tokens. But uh, the problem is that uh, both countries have different legal system, basically. So uh, America has got uh, a negative regulation system, but Korea has got positive regulation system. So uh, it's not easy to yeah. have benchmark as it is, right? There, there actually isn't even a benchmark, not on the standard regulation, but on what a virtual asset is. There, there are so many different definitions that are sort well, of being... You know what? I feel like that's over... You know, that came up in the last session and is almost overblown. I, do, I did like the Dubai approach, which was just, look, you know, if it's a digital representation, it's in. Like, let, And there are some exceptions, but let's not play around whether it's a cryptographically secured blah, 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 because someone will figure out a way to get around it. But, I mean, in terms of cooperation, I see it a lot if you've got um, regulators that are part of other fora. So, like, Securities and Futures Commission is part of IOSCO. Yeah, IOSCO. They talk. Um, then also the other side to it is um, through the bilateral MOUs that exist between those regulators. 
um, and they will have an increasingly important role to play for global exchanges because one of the biggest pain points for those exchanges is having to divide up their order books um, and having to comply with home market regulators as if they were distinct legal entities. So I, th I think that will grow, um, but at the moment, most regulators are piggybacking, sort of checking things out, um, and then also think that whatever they're doing is probably the highest standard. Yeah. They, like IOSCO developed uh, the, uh, the recommendations around market integrity as a standard for crypto asset trading platforms four years ago, three, four years ago, and no regulatory authority has really done it yet. Um, so has? Good for you. <laughs> so has well, Gibraltar. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably the difference between do they speak and do they come up with some common policy, yeah, right? Sure. Do they speak? Yeah. And, you know, any, any, any couple of nations, any nations that have significant capital flows between them and trade flows between them, the regulators speak to each other. Now, whether they agree on stuff and they come up with any common policy, that's a secondary issue. You, you, speak to, you speak to anybody in Southeast Asia, all the regulators I've had the chance to speak with, everybody speaks to MAS in Singapore. Right, and India is speaking with all the guys in their sphere of influence, if you want to put it. So, at, the question was more: Do they engage together? Right. Yeah. On that sense, I would say yes, but whether it's meaningful as an outcome for us, I'm not so sure. Great. Well, this has been a terrific panel. Really appreciate everybody's uh, contributions, and let's give them a big round of applause. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hopeful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.